From the campuses of East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee, and Emory and Henry College in Emory, Virginia, this is Religion for Life. I'm John Schuck. Religion for Life explores all kinds of topics at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. And today we'll tackle the topic of prayer. My guests are three, Eric Clark, Doug Hagler, and Nick Larson. They are Two Friars and a Fool, and you can find their website at twofriarsandafool.com. The tagline is, pull up a stool, grab a beer, and join the conversation, except unless, of course, you're listening uh, to this program on the radio on the road. Uh, But they are with me via Skype from various locations around the country, and they have authored a new book called Never Pray Again. Lift your head, unfold your hands, and get to work. Welcome, gentlemen, to Religion for Life. Thank Hello. you. Hello. Glad to be here. Thanks, John. Why don't you introduce yourselves? Uh, Eric Clark, who are you? So uh, my name is Eric Clark. I am a Presbyterian minister at a small church in northeast Colorado. Fort Morgan, Colorado is the, the town. I have uh, been... <clears throat> playing together and writing together and uh, collaborating with these two other gentlemen uh, for about nine years now since seminary. Yeah, and oh, great, Eric and, and Nick. Uh, I am Nick Larson. I'm a associate pastor in uh, Columbia, Missouri, and um, I'm a Disciples of Christ minister. Uh, and as Eric said, we've been doing this for a while um, and like to brag about which one of us might be the most foolish. <laughs> that was my next question. Uh, and Doug Hagler. Um, I will. I'll take that. I'm the fool today. Uh, I'm Doug Hagler. I am a Presbyterian pastor. Um, for the next few days, I'm going to be an interim pastor in uh, in the Philly metro area, and then a week later, I'm going to start as a designated pastor, um, about 45 minutes west of here, so still in Pennsylvania. So you're in the middle of a transition. I am. Okay, welcome. So uh, that was my question about uh, the two friars and a fool. So you 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 uh, take turns being the fool. Is that the deal? Or is one of you the fool? Yeah, I think at all different times uh, we're the fool. I think that's the kind of running joke, um, which one of us is being the most foolish at the moment. But really the two friars and a fool thing kind of started in a lot of ways because um, the fool is the only one who can say the truth to the king and not lose their head. And so in Ah. some ways uh, it's a badge of honor for us to each be the fool and to trade that around um, throughout our collaborations. I'm excited about Nick this. Likes to, Nick likes to think of it as a badge of honor because he's pretty much usually foolish. <laughs> All right. I, I, I really like this book, Never Pray Again. Lift your head, unfold your hands, and, and get to work. How, how did this book come to be? Um, we were uh, together at a collaborative um, space called UNCO. It's a group that gets together every year in Stony Point, New York. That, uh, it's a conference without an agenda, without a plan. And we were in that space uh, really inspired by some of the conversations we'd been, we'd been having, particularly talking about uh, some recent reading we'd been doing. Uh, Sarah Miles' book at that point had just come out, um, Take This Bread, and we had been reading her work about how she had taken the Sacrament of Communion and translated it into a really direct, concrete kind of action uh, for her neighborhood and for people in her neighborhood by by serving uh, a food pantry 
for hungry people in San Francisco from the communion table at her church, St. Gregory of Nyssa. And so that, that was a really inspirational idea for us. And we started asking, well, what if we took other aspects of worship and other Christian practices, which to us seem very spiritual, very inward centered, very, uh, can be, you know, thought of as navel gazing. And we tried to translate them into concrete other centered types of practices. So how literally are we to take this title? Um, are, are you advising readers to not pray at all, or is this more tongue-in-cheek? I would say that, uh, that we're, we're encouraging people to take the title as literally as they are uh, willing to take it and feel moved to take it. Um, so in some cases, it's going to be just an attention-grabbing uh, piece of hyperbole. Um, but I think, at least for my speaking for myself, um, having come to the end of this project, I am pretty convinced that a person could live a rich, flourishing Christian life and not pray. Huh. All right. Well, I want to get back to that in a second. And, and uh, well, But I also want to talk just about the process of, of writing this book. It's, it looks to be about, about 10 chapters or so, and with um, cameos in there where each of you writes also personally. But how did this writing take place? You're, you're, the three of you are all over the country. Um, who wrote what? How did that happen? I think for um, in a lot of ways, uh, because we've been collaborating online for years after having spent um, like three and a half, four years living in the same uh, area, we had kind of developed um, the ability to kind of do it through all kinds of modern technological means. But really for us, the book um, started to really take shape as we began to write it on Google Docs. So we'd have a Skype call or a Hangout or something, and we'd sort of talk and outline a chapter and then sit down, and each of us chose a specific color, and we sort of started writing and editing um, in each chapter kind of until you felt like I got my idea out there or in there. And then each time, all three of us would sign off on an edit of a particular chapter. So it was a way of us kind of constantly writing on the same platform in the same document, um, crafting and recrafting statements and phrases and paragraphs and chapters until they got to a point where all three of us could uh, embrace them for as they were. With the exception of the asides that you mention in the book, which uh, which are, of course, our own individual personal stories, the book really is um, it, throughout uh, intensely uh, collaborative in the sense that I don't think that you could separate one person's voice from another person's voice in the text. At least we hope not. We tried to, uh, we tried to have it be so... Um, we, we read over each other's work and we uh, so freely trusted each other in the way that we would edit each other's work that by the time it actually went to press, um, the, the work is a unified work. It isn't, it isn't, it isn't half Doug and half me and another half Nick, 150% something, I guess. But it, it, uh, it, it's really very tightly woven together. People have asked me, oh, did you write that section? And I honestly can't tell them. <laughs> if you're just joining us on Religion for Life, my guests are Eric Clark, Doug Hagler, and Nick Larson talking with me via Skype about their new book called Never Pray Again, Lift Your Head, Unfold Your Hands, and Get to Work. And, and the titles of each chapter are in the forms of, of types of prayer, uh, praise, thanksgiving, confession, petition, um, and, and so forth. But given as an imperative with an exclamation point, uh, awaken, praise, confess, grieve, uh, does that signify kind of the movement from passivity to action is that the the focus here? This is uh, Doug Doug Hagler here. Yeah. Um, yes, definitely. 
Uh, one of the things we were we were trying to do is to go through the prayers that occur in um, many liturgies uh, and in the order that they appear and to take each prayer and essentially to take the prayer part out of it and to see whether there is anything left over. You know, are there things that can only be prayed or are these things that can also be thought about in other ways as more direct, uh, other-centered, other-person-centered activities? And um, because we wanted them each to become an imperative, uh, in English, the way you have an imperative is an, is an exclamation point. Um, and so we thought it was kind of uh, interesting to have all of our chapters that way. Um, and that's kind of where that, where that came from. As an example, a direct, um, you know, one of the, the direct translations of this concept is to take uh, prayers of confession, which it, especially in the Presbyterian tradition, um, we do, you know, virtually every Sunday, we have a corporate prayer of confession said. And um, instead of praying one's confessions to God, um, we, you know, translate that into a, an imperative to confess, uh, which is, uh, you know, expressed directly to your neighbor, the sense that you need to you need to be real with who you are, where you are in your life, what's broken, what needs fixing, where you have to apologize, make amends, uh, and do this uh, with other people, not um, with a surrogate, uh, either a priest or you know in worship with uh, our imaginary friend God, so that you can feel better about yourself without having actually changed anything in your life. Well, yeah, that's what I read in your book is that prayer can give people uh, the illusion that they have done something when they really haven't. And and so rather than pray for someone or promise to pray for someone, uh, get up and, and do something for that person. Absolutely. Uh, we actually talk in the first chapter about a concept called uh, the Macbeth effect, which is uh, something being described in experimental psychology where they're saying that people, subjects in psychological experiments demonstrate that if you provide them a... Uh, a way to ritually express a feeling of guilt or um, any really almost any kind of emotion, then they no longer feel the need to to handle the consequences of that emotion. So if you get a person uh, who's done something wrong and you offer them the opportunity to wash their hands, symbolically, uh, they feel better about the thing they did wrong, even though nothing has actually changed. And this they call this the Macbeth effect, the sense that you, uh, you can feel better about something without having actually done anything to change it. If you've done some sort of symbolic or ritual action, it takes the place of the need to do the concrete, the, the real action. Another thing I hear in your book um, is, is a critique of, of what? Magical thinking? Uh, but let me put it in the form of a question. Does prayer ever accomplish anything? For example, if I pray to God to heal Aunt Millie, will that ever work? Any one of uh, you this, can jump on that one. This, this is Doug Hagler again. Mm -hmm. um, I would say, uh, and this is me answering for myself, um, my best answer is I don't know. Um, but given what I, I know about the world, my own experience, my own reading, I would say that it is unlikely that prayer is going to, to have an effect on Aunt Millie, um, whether she knows you're praying for her or not. I mean, there are some experiments that have shown that if people know they're being prayed for, they actually have slightly worse outcomes. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, there are also some experiments that might indicate that prayer has some effects. Um, so, uh, you know, I don't know if that'll have an effect. Um, and that's one of the reasons we wrote this book, because I, I don't know whether praying for Aunt Millie will have an effect. But I know that going to visit Aunt Millie and spending time with her is going to have an effect. 
Mm-hmm. And so if you're going to put your time and energy into something, um, then the choice is kind of putting it into something that there's a slight chance it'll have an effect. But we all have many examples of times when good people have prayed for good things and they have not happened. Um, on the other hand, you can put your time and energy into something that is almost guaranteed to have a good effect, which is to go visit Aunt Millie uh, and spend time with her and, you know, and, and maintain that relationship. You know, we've adopted prayer from, from a long history of supernatural theism in which we shoot a prayer up and it uh, supposedly gets answered or something and then comes back down. Uh, in a sense, what I, what I hear you doing is doing the practical work of, of, of prayer as really human beings in community. And that is very much the case. I mean, I think that, you know, Jesus talks about in Matthew 25 how when we take care of those who are in need, we're taking care of Christ. And so for, for us, it very much becomes about um, the most important way that you can have a conversation with God is often by having conversations with the stranger, by talking and serving others, by working and being in relationship, and that those things themselves become uh, a better gateway or an easier gateway or maybe just even um, for some of us, a more direct gateway to the divine than it is to to speak words either out loud or uh, in our heads um, to God who is off there, thinking that those words are necessary for us to say for God to understand what's really going on. Yeah, uh, you know, I look at a I look at a Facebook page or something, and someone posts a situation, and and people respond um, with um, "You're in my prayers," etc. I, I wonder if if prayer, in that sense, if the word prayer, if we just don't know how else to say it, if it serves as a cultural cliche for expressing compassion. Right. In fact, I found as a pastor, and this is something people always ask us: is your pastors? How can you not, you know, be uh, have positive things to say about prayer. Uh-huh. I find as a pastor that usually when um, people are asking for me to pray for them, what they're asking for is they're asking for my compassion, they're asking for my attention, they're ask you, asking for my continued ongoing concern expressed for them. Uh, and when I say, or, or when I feel tempted to say to someone else that I pray for you, what I really mean by that is I love you, you know, I want to, I, and, and for whatever reason, it's the, I'll pray for you is the thing we say to the people who, uh, don't quite fall into that intimate close circle of people to whom we would say, I love you. And so instead we say, I'll pray for you as a way to Mm. less awkwardly tell them that we love them. So I have, I have started swapping those and just saying to people, I love you. When I, when I would normally say, I'll pray for you, I say, I love you. Yeah. Okay. That's, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Go ahead. This this is Nick. Nick. Um, I also think that it often has to do with the fact that um, we're saying that God loves you. So not only is it us saying, I love you, um, when I say that, uh, you know, I'll pray for someone or when someone asks that, they're also looking for sort of reassurance that God is with them in this moment and in this tragic or specific situation. And so I've also gone to saying, you know, trying to say things like that, but also to remind them that God is present with them already that God is there beside them in the midst of whatever this circumstance is going on, and that I will continue to be there alongside of what God is already doing in their midst. Well, you know, along this this theme of, of being a minister as I am, each of you is one, on Sunday morning we do this thing, and, and we call it worship, which is kind of a corporate prayer, uh, and in it are interspersed little mini prayers. Uh, how has this understanding of prayer shaped each of you and, and how you do this Sunday morning thing? I'll go ahead and go yeah. first. Right, um, this, this is Doug, Doug Hagler again. Uh, so for me, 
I, I still pray. I still lead worship that includes prayers. I still uh, pray with people when I visit them. Um, the reason for this is not because I think that it's necessary, as I, as I kind of mentioned before. Um, the reason for this is that I've found that the language of prayer is a language that, for better or for worse, um, enables people to say things and to hear things that they, they may not be able to say and to hear another way. Um, so, for example, in worship, we have the, the time for joys and concerns. And during that time, we all hear about stuff that we didn't know was going on in people's lives. Um, and I think that because it's in the context of a prayer, they're able to maybe be more vulnerable or more you know, immediate with what's going on and not pretend as much that everything's okay. Um, and, and so it, it lets people say things. And then also I think it lets them hear things where – if you were just to say to someone, I love you, um, which I also do, and I think it's great. Um, but the, there could be situations where a person, the discomfort of that kind of intimacy would override the message. Like it would just be a little bit too awkward. And so the language of prayer is a language that allows me to say things I may not be able to say uh, otherwise, either because they're emotionally very sensitive or, or maybe because they're um, they're challenging. And the way I want to introduce the challenge first is in the context of a prayer so that it's going to be heard um, in that hopefully kind of mindful way uh, and, and less reactive way. That, that said, I've found that um, there are ways to lead, this is Eric speaking again, sorry, uh, that I found there are ways to lead uh, corporate worship and, um, you know, communal setting uh, type spiritual practices where uh, the prayers are transformed into other centered concrete actions like we do in the book. For example, mm -hmm. one thing I've done with my congregation on Sunday mornings, which I found pretty fruitful, um, is to turn that prayer of confession time from a corporate, we all say words that the minister wrote for us or that came out of an old book that, uh, that we said together, to a time where the, I ask them to turn to their neighbors, you know, everyone to pair up into into pairs and um and and to confess directly to someone next to them what in their life needs fixing what's broken what what where they hurt where they feel guilty where they feel wronged and then to receive um and to receive you know blessings and absolutions from their neighbor directly uh and I think, I mean, it takes a little longer than everyone reading some words. It takes about five minutes for everyone to, to get through. And the more people get comfortable with it, actually, the longer it seems to take because people start, I think, getting real with each other. Mm -hmm. But uh, but that, you know, I think it's possible to um, imagine corporate practices, uh, corporate spiritual practices that would not be navel-gazing, but that would be uh, direct, other-centered, meaningful practices. All right, thanks, Eric. Nick, what about you? What do you think about this? Um, for me, I think in my context, um, you know, we kind of go through through um, worship in kind of a lot of standard ways. Um, as a disciples community, we don't really have a prayer of confession that is in our liturgy each and every week. It's kind of comes and goes through Lent and other things. Um, but I do write a pastoral prayer, and um, ironically enough, I've had several members of my congregation come up to me and ask when I'm going to compile my pastoral prayers and publish those. And I think um, that it, there's some irony in that. Um, but on top of that, I also see that, um, as what Doug had to say, um, people listen differently uh, when 
the language is addressed directly to God. And I think sometimes um, that is a boundary to be used pastorally and a boundary to be pushed pastorally. If we know those things are true, then we can use them in a way that um, I think God is listening to us, whether we're um, using dear God at the beginning or not, so to speak. And for me, I try and use those moments in a way that are most effective to help um, make the divine concrete and real and personable to each and every person who has joined our community that particular week. If you are just joining us on Religion for Life, I have three guests talking with me via Skype, Eric Clark, Doug Hagler, and Nick Larson. Uh, Their website is twofriarsandafool.com, and and, uh, their book is Never Pray Again. Uh, Lift your head, unfold your hands, and get to work. And we've just been talking about actual praying, but really this book is about doing and and getting out there and actually being the prayer, uh, being uh, the good news, doing the stuff rather than kind of hiding behind prayer. And, And I have to say, you got me in the first... Uh, chapter with the Monty Python song. All things dull and ugly, all creatures short and squat. (laughs) Uh, What are you doing in that chapter on praise? Well, in addition to our interest of trying to make uh, take spiritual practices and make them direct and other-centered and such as we've said a couple times, one thing um, that we can't help doing together as we write and why we called ourselves Two Friars and a Fool is try to be playful and a little bit surprising with the way we go about doing theology. I feel like theology often is um, heavy and serious and a and, uh, little self-important. And uh, it, for that reason, it fails to really connect with people sometimes, fails to reach. And so we tried intentionally in the book to reach for what we thought would be a, uh, a way of expressing ourselves and a way of um, uh, tackling a given subject that would surprise people. So, for example, with the chapter in praise, um, we wanted to say uh, that, well, it's obvious that people already praise things like, you know, beautiful mountain vistas and oceans and celebrities and athletes and things that, you know, are the the sort of obvious things in our culture that we value and revere. What are the things that nobody praises and what would it be like to talk about praise as more meaningful if directed toward uh, things that are not viewed as praiseworthy? You know, you, you said your, your book is light and, and not in, a, in, in one sense. But it's not superficial. Um, there is important stuff in here. Uh, you talk about love of enemies and doing it on, on the international level, of our crazy materi- middle, militarized, unsustainable uh, culture headed for a collapse to economic drain on our 20- and 30-year-olds. Yeah, it's, there's some real brutal honesty here about, um, about what we're feeling, about, about grieving, about lament. Um, and and I found that I just want you to know I found that very valuable that this is uh, this isn't uh, this isn't it's light you're fun but this is also uh, some serious stuff. This is Nick again. I think that gets back to sort of sometimes the humor is the way that a when the three of us get together tends to roll. Uh, B is the way that you can often say things even if they're saying them to ourselves in a way that helps challenge our deeper understanding of that being and that meaning. Um, there are things like, you know, the chapter that's called Expel made it into the book because we really had no idea what we were going to do to try and make Expel into something concrete. When you mean Expel, that, that, that's the chapter on the, on the expelling demons, right? Yes. On exorcism. On exorcism. exorcism, yeah. Um, yeah and that's, so we that's really didn't know one. exactly 
how to write that chapter. We didn't know what that would look like in the context of this book. And it came from a series of jokes. And really, in some ways, the humor of Doug's aside for me speaks to the brevity of the whole question, the whole idea of the book, because Doug tells his story about trying to encounter um, exorcism in college in such a way that is both funny and yet challenges us in a deeper way. And then that leads us into that deeper thing where we can be cutting and honest and we can speak to the principalities and powers that exist in our world. You know, um, I just I just have about a minute left, but I also want to uh, add this. Uh, you, you're right. I think with prayer, prayer has just left a, a lot of baggage uh, for people. And, and, and I raise my hand with that. Um, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of guilt. Uh, you know, I didn't get healed because I didn't pray enough or I didn't have enough faith. Or, and it's been a, a damaging legacy of, of, of kind of a magical thinking that's, that's taken away from uh, the real concrete acts of, of being human. I think that I, I can I can echo that sentiment. Uh, this is Doug Doug Hagler again. Um, part of where this book comes out of, for me at least, is a, a deeply ambivalent sort of relationship with prayer. Um, that I've never had the experience that when I was praying, I felt like someone else was talking to me or listening. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I have a vivid imagination, so I, I could imagine that I'm talking to Gandalf right now, and you know, but that doesn't mean <laughs> that it's really going on. Uh-huh. And so, eventually, I figured out, you know, that if I'm not trying to feel like I'm being heard, I, I don't know that I'm being heard. Um, and also because I've uh, struggled with depression my whole life. That's one of the things, like any mental illness, it's internal. And so the sense is that you should be able to pray things like that away because prayer is also mostly internal. Um, And my experience was that prayer had no impact uh, and if anything made it worse because I was feeling like there must be something wrong with how I'm praying or who I am as a person or whatever that this is not working for me. And because it's, you know, so many people I cared about and, and who cared about me and who I trusted would recommend prayer and they would be, you know, very, very genuine and sincere. And I would, I would try it and it just didn't ever work. Um, and so part of this book for me was just, uh, working through my own thoughts on, you know, um, my own experiences of prayer are that it, it doesn't have a lot of efficacy. And so what do I, what, what do I do instead? Like, how do I make that into a challenge for myself? Um, and part of that is taking prayer and translating it in, translating it into a, a riskier and more demanding uh, action on my part. And I think your point, John, about it, prayer having a lot of baggage and potentially, you know, having some some pain and some some damage it does to people's lives and associated with it, I think is right on point for me as well. And for, for a lot of people, I think that's why part of the reason I was compelled to write the book is feeling that I, I'm not I'm not alone here in having some of these thoughts and this, these experiences. I feel like uh, not only is there, of course, the opportunity cost with prayer where maybe you're wasting your time when there's other things that are more concrete, but there's the, uh, the way that it tends to portray the way the world works and God works in a very capricious sort of uh, you know, arbitrary kind of way. And uh, I think that what we wanted to do partially is to reframe spiritual practices where um, the the direct connection with your neighbor, the love and mercy and grace and, and confession and forgiveness uh, and need and vulnerability expressed in direct human relationship is where we um, find a representation of God that is not capricious, that is not, uh, you know, magical thinking, that is not supernatural, uh, but is uh, life-giving, that is 
uh, valuable, is beautiful, is humanistic, it lifts people up and gives value to human lives. And I think that that's an important part of what a spiritual practice should do is that it should it should lift human lives up not uh, not beat them down. And you gentlemen have done that in this excellent book. We're just out of time, but I want to thank Eric Clark, Doug Hagler, and Nick Larson, Two Friars and a Fool, twofriarsandafool.com, with uh, an excellent book that I uh, highly recommend, Never Pray Again. Lift your head, unfold your hands, and get to work. Guys, thanks so much for being with me today on Religion for Life. Thank you, John. Thanks. It was a pleasure. Thank you. At the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life, this is... Religion for Life, I'm John Shuck, minister at First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Our website is fpcelizabethton.org. More information about Religion for Life, including links to podcasts, can be found at religionforlife.com. Like us, oh, do like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and listen to us on iTunes. Religion for Life is co-produced by WETS in Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC in Emory, Virginia. Be well.